Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 13. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Build ye houses, and dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which ye cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. I have a friend who's an accomplished photographer. He posts on social media a good bit of his nature photography. Interestingly, he tags most of his nature photography with the hashtag, God the Artist. I like that. God is the greatest artist in the universe. Would you agree? If you've ever looked at a sunset or a sunrise or a beautiful meadow or springtime flowers, you know that God is the ultimate artist. In contrast, Satan is not an artist, but an arsonist. Satan burns down everything that is good. And this morning, I want to talk about living in a world that is lit on fire. I want to talk about how Satan is wreaking havoc in our culture. But at the same time, God, the artist, can bless his people to live beautiful lives, pleasant lives, pastoral scenes. And I think we see that in the text before us this morning. Build ye houses and dwell in them and plant gardens. While you're in Babylon, prioritize the importance of family and home and eat the fruit of your gardens. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased and not diminished in the land and seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captives. Now let's lay just a bit of historical background behind this passage in Jeremiah 29. You may know that Jeremiah was one of the pre-exilic prophets. If you really want to understand how the Old Testament fits together, one of the important keys to 
Understanding that is to understand the Babylonian captivity. Here are the facts. In about 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried a number of the impressive young men away to Babylon for 70 years. Some of these young men were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember the stories in the book of Daniel? Ezekiel the prophet. They were carried to Babylon. These were young people who were the best and the brightest, and they were taken to assimilate into Babylonian culture to be used for the furtherance of this growing, mighty world empire. For the next 16 years, he made further trips to Jerusalem and finally leveled the city to the ground. Jeremiah talks about that in the book of Lamentations when he says, How is the city that was once the joy of the whole earth now become a desolation? He raised the temple of Solomon. Solomon's beautiful, magnificent temple, he destroyed it. And the city of Jerusalem was completely destroyed. And for 70 years, Israel was judged by God in Babylonian captivity. And as you read the prophets, some of them are pre Exilic, that is, they prophesied before the exile. Some are during the exile. Some are post-exilic, that is, after the exile. For instance, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, they were before the exile. Daniel and Ezekiel were during the exile. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they were after the Babylonian captivity. So Jeremiah is telling them that you're going to Babylon for 70 years. Now, can you imagine how such a message would have affected his popularity? I mean, if I were to say today, America is doomed to be destroyed. In just a few years, we will be overtaken by a foreign power. They will occupy our land and we will all be serfs and slaves living under their control. Or if I were to say that a foreign country is going to come in and carry us away to their country where we will live in bondage for 70 years, many people would say, just a minute, enough of the negativity. God is displeased with us, the prophets said, and the people didn't appreciate that one bit because it upset the status quo, you know. They, they were enjoying their lives. Well, that was Jeremiah. And Jeremiah had a hard road to hoe. You know, when I was called to preach, at least I had the prospect of a convert here and there. And God has blessed me to have some baptisms during my 40 years in the gospel ministry. I've had the privilege of administering the ordinance of baptism and seeing churches grow. But Jeremiah had no such prospect from the get-go. When God called him to the ministry, he said that the people are going to oppress you, their necks are going to be stiff, their forehead will be like iron, that is, you won't be able to penetrate and they will persecute you. And sure enough, Jeremiah got a small taste of that early on and he finally said, Lord, I think I'll quit. He wanted to turn in his prophet's card. Lord, I resign. But he says, Lord, thou hast deceived me and I was deceived. That is, Lord, you're not playing fair. For you've put your word in my heart like a fire in my bones, and I cannot quit. I cannot stay. I was weary with forbearing when I heard the defaming of many. I heard the preacher down the street saying things that were not true, and I just couldn't stay silent. He wanted to resign, but God wouldn't let him. My friends, you know, that's sort of the situation many of us are in. 
isn't it, that we can't leave Jesus Christ because he has the words of eternal life. Remember, he asked Peter, will you also go away? And Peter said, Lord, where shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. Lord, there's nowhere else I can find a message that suits my case. And that's the way I feel about the old Baptist church, to be honest with you. Well, Jeremiah had a hard go of it. He had pressure, opposition. He tried to quit, but he couldn't even quit because the word was in his heart like a burning fire shut up in his bones. He finally was put into a pit where he sunk in the mire, and he would have starved to death there had not an Ethiopian had mercy upon him and rescued him. Jeremiah was not a popular figure in his day. Now, the prophets who prophesied smooth things, who said, all is well, God is blessing you, And even when it came apparent that they were going to Babylon, the false prophets said, it won't be very long, it's just like a vacation, we'll be back home before you know it. If you look further in this 29th chapter of Jeremiah, God says, don't listen to the prophets that prophesy to you of their lies, for they speak a vision of their own hearts and not from the mouth of the Lord. So Jeremiah was standing pretty much all alone. And what we have here in this 29th chapter is his letter to the captives that have been taken first to Babylon. Look at verse 1. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem under the residue of the elders which were carried away captives and to the priests and to the prophets and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is Jeremiah's letter to Daniel. See, they were part of that initial group that was taken. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Hebrew children. Others of the pious and impressive young people who were carried away to Babylon. This is his letter. Of course, he can't preach to them anymore. He didn't have a telephone to call them or some kind of, um, you know, video conferencing software where he could connect with them in Babylon and preach a message online to them. He sent them a letter. And here's the message from God. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, is our text, the God of Israel. Build houses, plant gardens, get married, have children, have grandchildren. In other words, put your roots down because the captivity will be long. These false prophets are not telling you the truth. That's the message. Okay, so you've got a little bit of the background. Let's make application now of this story to us. Babylon is the name given in the New Testament to this fallen world system where the children of Israel went literally about 600 years before Christ and lived there for 70 years. That's spiritually used as the symbol in the book of Revelation for this fallen world. You remember the story in the book of Revelation, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and the whole world is upset because Babylon, civilization in other words, is crumbling to the ground. Interestingly, in 1 Peter 5:13 as Peter closes his epistle, he says the church which is at Babylon greeteth you. Now was Peter at Babylon? The church at Babylon sends greetings. Now Peter was in Jerusalem. But notice he calls it Babylon because it was so apostate. It was so dark. It was such a fallen society that Peter calls it Babylon. One of the most influential books that I've read in the last decade or so is a book about the medieval period or the Dark Ages by William Manchester. 
titled A World Lit Only by Fire. The idea is that during the dark ages, you know, when they chained Bibles to the pulpits and the people believed in leprechauns and witches and fairies, you know, most of your fairy tales, Hansel and Gretel and these others, they came from the dark ages, from the medieval period of time when the masses of people lived in ignorance and superstition. And only the elites, the oligarchs, the ruling class, had access to education. And whatever the priests said, the people believed. So the priests kept people, because they controlled information, they kept them in control. And there was so much corruption during this period in papal Rome. I mean, this book details some of the corruption among the priests and in the nunneries, and the paganism that crept in, and it talks about the murders, and the violence, and the viciousness, and the decadence. It was a world, the writer says, that was lit only by fire, not by light. Now, fire, you know, can give you light, but there's a difference in the light of truth and the fire of judgment, right? And their world, the only light in their world was was darkness, is what he's saying. In my opinion, in spite of its technological progress and advances, our world is becoming very much like the Dark Ages, in which information is controlled by the elites. Pagan superstition abounds among the common people. And a political system in which oligarchs rule tyrannically over the peasantry, over the common people, is increasingly common. Satan is indeed an arsonist. And the postmodern world in which we live, my beloved, is increasingly a world like the Dark Ages, lit only by the fire of chaos, division, deception, and in a word, bondage, the loss of freedoms. The West, and America in particular, has changed in my lifetime. This is not the same world that I grew up in in the 1960s and 1970s. Some of you that are even older than I am would say it has changed dramatically in my lifetime, wouldn't you? I mean, the simplicity, the kindness, the general wholesomeness, the uh, healthy-mindedness, the general spirit of goodwill and patriotism and what we saw early on is really a thing of the past in many respects. Our country is moving farther and farther away from the biblical and moral foundations on which it was established. The modern world, with its humanism and atheism and secularism, evolution, abortion, social engineering, gender dysphoria and confusion, transhumanism, population control, may I say, my beloved, all of these things show us that the biblical worldview that once prevailed has been largely eclipsed. The parallels between our modern situation, I want to say this morning, and the Israelites in Babylon, I think are appropriate. It's very hard for a child of God to live in Babylon. It's hard to be true to the Lord and to keep your thinking straight while we're surrounded by the darkness and the bondage and the secularism of a Babylonian culture. How can we be Christians in Babylon? Somebody said, well, we've got to reclaim our country. 
I like what Elder Josh Coker said recently. Our focus today cannot be so much on making America great again as on how to live in Babylon. I think that's a very accurate perspective. And so what I want to help you to do from this passage this morning in Jeremiah 29 is to answer that question, how can we live in Babylon? And I think we can extract seven things that should be priorities to us from this passage as we live in a fallen world, and let's express it in terms of seven key words. The first word is simplicity. What should be your priorities and mine as we live in Babylon? It's time that you and I return to a local focus, simplicity. Instead of being so focused on what's happening internationally and globally, it's time that we build houses, plant gardens, have families, and seek the peace of this city and pray to the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof you shall have peace. I think one of the things that is very clear in this is a more simple mindset, a more local focus. In other words, if you're going to survive in Babylon and I'm going to survive in Babylon, we need to learn to live where we are. Not where we used to be or where we wish we were, but where you are right now. There's an old saying, life is what happens to you while you're waiting for life to happen. You ever met a young person who said, now one day when I graduate, one day when I get my driver's license, one day when I'm married, one day when I'm free from the shackles of parental restraints, I will really start living. My beloved, how many people wish their lives away? Each stage of life is very brief, you know, it's only here for a little while. Don't wish your childhood away. Don't wish your teenage years away. Don't wish your young adult, young married life away. Because one day you will roll over in bed and wake up and you'll be old. You know, it happens real quickly, doesn't it? It's wise to learn to live where you are. Right where you are. And none of us know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what tomorrow holds for you. I don't know what it holds for me. But the fact is, to be satisfied and content with the state that we're in. Paul learned that. Philippians chapter 4, he says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Whether I'm rich or poor, healthy or ill, you know, popular or persecuted, whatever my circumstances are, I've learned to be content. Notice contentment is a learned trait. It's not something that you're born with. It's not something indigenous to a personality type. It is a discipline, something that you must develop and cultivate and learn. Paul said, I've learned to be content if I'm in prison or if I'm free, if I'm full or if I'm hungry, if I'm received or if I'm opposed. He said, I've learned to be content. Psalm 131 says, my soul is like a weaned child. In other words, I've crashed against the sides of the cage. I've tried to change the situation enough to where I've gotten bruises, you know, all over my body. But now I'm going to be satisfied with life the way it is. I have a good friend who lives in a rural area and he posted a video recently showing a cage that he has where he traps wild hogs. These two wild hogs that were trapped in this cage were running and just crashing into the sides of the fence. And they just wouldn't stop. I mean, you say, well, they were looking for a soft place, no doubt. 
But you see, they were not content. Would you call that contentment? Were they glad to be where they were? No. My friends, if you and I are going to live in Babylon, the first thing necessary, and we can glean this idea from the text this morning, is to live where we are. And I think that it's possible that if you stay plugged in all the time to 24-7 news coverage or social media or the internet, if you stay on your phone or your tablet or your computer or your television all day, every day, it's very easy to get a false impression that the whole world has gone mad. You know, I was thinking the other day, every time I read Twitter, I start seeing ghosts behind every closet. And of course, there are legitimate dangers in the world around us. But then I got in my car and I drove down some of these country roads and I saw people out mowing their grass and planting flowers and fixing their birdhouses and little children riding their tricycles. And it reminded me, dear friends, that the whole world is not in a state of chaos and confusion. There are normal people who are still trying to live with basic values. Would you agree? There are still people around who think like you do, who are just common folks. Most of your neighbors, most of the people in our communities are just common folks like us. So live locally. Because if you get too big of a perspective... I think it has the effect of giving us a false impression. In other words, instead of living globally, let's focus on the local church. Now, I'm concerned about the kingdom of God far and wide, and I try to do what I can to do the work of an evangelist. And I'm concerned about the primitive Baptists across this world. But you know, my chief concern is with Bethel Primitive Baptist Church, this congregation this is where I invest my time, my efforts, my heart. This is my field of labor that God has given me. Just like a garden. We developed that metaphor last week. You can't garden the whole world. You can't cultivate the planet, my friends. You've got to mark out a, a manageable section. You've got to, you know, aim small, miss small. You've got to take small bites. And there you can do some good. The local church is really the only context that I can exercise any lasting influence. My home, my family, my friends and neighbors, and the local church is really the only place I can have any influence. Somebody says, I'm just so upset that the primitive Baptists as a whole are not unified. Well, I mean, you know, whatever your perception is, there's probably more unity than may appear on the surface at times, but somebody says, I just wish we could get the world, one world, one religion, one denomination. We just want everybody to be the same. My beloved, that's not going to happen until you get to heaven. Do you know that? My arms aren't big enough to bring the whole denomination or the whole country together, and no man is able to bring everybody. Somebody says, there's just so much division among us. It's been that way since the Garden of Eden. Because Satan is an arsonist. He's a divider. But you know where I can affect unity? In the local church. I can do my level best under the power of God's Spirit to promote unity in the local body and not to be a divider here. I can't unify the denomination. I can't unify the country. I can't unify the globe, the planet. 
but I can do something about keeping my family together and about keeping our church together, and you can too, right? So simplicity. Focus on the local church. Live locally. Local churches, local relationships, local politics. Somebody says, well, I'm worried about what's going to happen on the international stage or the federal level in our country. I, I understand. I hear you. But you know where it starts is at the local level with our school boards, our county commissioners. That matters very much. Live more simply. Live where you are. You see that idea? Build houses. Plant gardens. Raise families. Pray for the city where you live. Do you see that? Simplicity. The second word, dynasty. A dynasty is a family heritage. And we see that in the fifth verse when he says, build houses and dwell in them. Now, perhaps you live in an inner city, high-rise apartment building on the 30th floor, and you can't build a house. You don't have the financial resources or whatever. But the idea here is cultivate family. What he's saying here is make your home and family a priority. If you're going to live in Babylon, if I'm going to survive in Babylon, my friends, we need to return to a local focus. Secondly, we need to make home and family a priority and put our roots down and plan on staying a while. A long-term mentality. Now, so many of the younger generation, the millennial crowd, seems to be, you know, let's rush ahead. Let's finish with education. You know, we don't have time to stop and smell the roses. Let's go at breakneck speed and let's try to accomplish everything early. Let's be at the same level our parents were when we left home. Let's at least achieve that level within the first two years after college. You know, somebody says, I've just got to fast track my way to success. My beloved, this passage would tell us if you're going to survive in Babylon, it's important to have a more long-term focus. It takes a long time to build a house, doesn't it? Build homes. Plant gardens. Do gardens come up the next day after you plant them? No, it takes a while. Depending on the particular plant, you know, I think asparagus takes several years. You know, if you're going to have an asparagus crop, you've got to be willing to wait. You've got to have patience long term. Put your roots down. Plan on staying a while. What about having children and grandchildren? Does that happen in just a little while? No, it takes decades to build a dynasty, a dynasty. I want to say that this is such a needed message in our day because so many people's priority is their career, their portfolio, their power and influence, their public persona, not the children and grandchildren. May I say there's nothing more important, you parents, that you will ever do in life than to rear a godly heritage, than to raise those little ones. Christian mothers, I want to say today that even though it's often unapplauded and you're not given the credit that is due for the labor expended, that is much of your labor is behind the scenes and it's not easy to gauge how much progress you've made, yet I want to say that there's nothing more important than you're doing than touching those little lives. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And fathers, how important it is for you to be spiritual leaders in your home. To not just bark orders like a top sergeant, but to set an example because children are going to live what they learn. They will walk in your footsteps, you know. They will be like you. Haven't you noticed that you're like your parents? Don't you ever hear dad or mom in your 
the things that you say or in the way that you think, and, and your children are going to be like you. And how important it is if God in his providence blesses you to find a mate and to have a place where you can establish a homestead and maybe plant a garden and eat the produce from that garden and then see your grandchildren born. And there's nothing more important. I know some of you help to keep your grandchildren and you uh, provide care for them and helping out your kids while they're working and so forth. And you can't substitute for the safety of a family unit. A daycare won't provide that. And I know some of you do that and that's fine. I mean, I'm not casting aspersions on anyone today, but what I'm saying is the home must be the priority. Strong churches are made from what? Strong homes. And strong homes are made from strong individuals. And therefore, my heart needs to be right if I'm going to be the right kind of father and the right kind of husband. And then if my home is operating like it should, that will help to strengthen the church. And strong countries and communities are made from strong churches. So it all starts with the home. It's vitally important. John the Baptist had the right idea when he came preaching as the forerunner of Christ. Malachi 4 verse 5 says that I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And obviously this is a prophecy of the forerunner of Jesus who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That is John the Baptist. And it says, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That's the last verse of the Old Testament. What would John the Baptist's ministry accomplish? It would accomplish repentance at a grassroots level. It would help people to think again about the real priority in their life. I was taught early on that if you want to be successful in anything you do in life, you need to keep your priorities straight. You need to know what is most important and what comes next. And my friends, may I say to every one of us here today, the home and the family must be a priority in each of our lives. It is the parents' responsibility to train and nurture their children in the Word of God. It is the parents who are to point them as arrows toward the mark. You know, children are the heritage of the Lord. That is, if God's blessed you with children, He's blessed you with a great opportunity to influence the world. You say, I want to get on TV. That way I can influence the world. You'll do more by touching a little life than you will by speaking to the masses on television or the internet. Indeed, my friends, there's nothing more important than building people. Now, you can't make them children of God. We know that. You can't touch their hearts. You can't change them from depraved sinners into people who love the Lord. But you can instruct their minds with the truth. You can fill and inculcate the Word of God into their lives in every common practice of life. You know, that's what Deuteronomy 6 says. If you walk by the way, then remind them of the Lord. If you see a tree or a flower or a bird, you use that as an opportunity to speak to them about God. In other words, we're talking about lifestyle Christianity. And if you'll do that, and God is ever pleased to regenerate them and quicken their hearts, they've got a head full of truth. Now a heart full of the love of God, my beloved, they are set up to be successful and useful to the glory of Christ in this world. What are the two words so far? Simplicity, dynasty. Do you see that in Jeremiah 29? Build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, take wives, beget sons and daughters. Somebody says, well, I wouldn't want to bring a child into this world. You know, you hear in 
secular people say things like that from time to time. This world is so bad, it is wrong to bring a child into a world like this. Well, imagine the children of Israel living in Babylon. Somebody might have said, oh, it's not right to bring a child into this culture. No, sir, let's wait until we get home to have children. God says, have children. And he doesn't say how many. There's no hard, fast law to that. It may be cheaper by the dozen. I don't know if any of us can afford that. But, uh, you know, the first child doesn't take that much. The second, uh, a little bit more. But by the time that third one comes along, it takes a bite out of crime. That is, your budget sees it, doesn't it? You know, but what's more important to invest in? Cryptocurrency, stocks, bonds, or lives? Lives. If you're making an investment into the way that these children are able to see the world through a biblical framework. And that means you're not raising them with a tablet or an iPad or a computer, you know. I mean, that's not what they do. They don't spend all the time playing games, you know. I know that our lives are busy, but still it's time we unplug from time to time. And we sit down together as a family, sing a hymn, have prayer together, read a chapter, talk about a Bible story. And when time comes for public worship, as fathers, it is our responsibility to make sure that our children and grandchildren, if at all possible, are in the house of God on the Lord's day. Very important. Simplicity, dynasty. Two words. Number three, liberty. If you're going to live in Babylon, make liberty a priority. And you see that in this idea when he says, build houses, plant gardens. Take wives. He's saying that you need to work hard. This Peter Pan syndrome that says, uh, I just always want to be a little boy and have fun. I never want to grow up. There's a general consensus of grown-ups who's never learned to put away childish things in our culture today and to assume responsibility for doing things on their own. And there comes a time that we need to work hard to be as self-sufficient and independent as possible. Notice he's saying not that you get on the public dole, but you build a house and you live in it and you plant a garden. That is, you're not so much depending on others, but you're trying to be as self-sustaining and self-sufficient. This is good advice. Wise biblical counsel for living in Babylon that you take a small bite, you carve out your little garden area and Invest yourself in your family, your home, your garden, and you try to have the food to eat and the things that you need so that if the world around you is burning down, you can still maintain life in a self-sufficient way. That's the thought here. You see it? Make proper arrangements to be able to sustain your life if the rest of the world around you closes down. You say, Brother Goins, are you teaching a prepper mentality? No, I'm teaching the Word of God and the importance of being wise enough to see what's happening around you and to make provisions in advance like the ant. You know, the ant has no overseer, guide, or ruler, but it stores its meat in the summer so that it will have something to eat in the wintertime. And Proverbs chapter 27, verse 12 says, A prudent man looks well to his going, but the foolish pass on and are punished. That is, they proceed at breakneck pace, willy-nilly, without ever thinking about the long-term focus, and therefore, when the time comes, they don't have any oil for their lamps. But the prudent man, the wise person, anticipates what might happen. He foreseeth the evil. The prudent man foreseeth the evil. 
He anticipates what could happen, and he takes steps to prevent it. Liberty. That's how to live in liberty, freedom, personal freedom, and self-sufficiency and independence when the rest of the world is crumbling. Simplicity, dynasty, liberty, we've got to hurry. Tranquility. Number four. Verse seven. And seek the peace of the city, whether I've caused you to be carried away captives. And pray to the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof ye shall have peace. That word peace is the Hebrew word shalom, which is the premier covenantal blessing that God promised to his obedient people under the old covenant. He said, if you will serve me and obey me, then you will have peace. And it means more than just the absence of war. But this word peace speaks of spiritual and physical well-being, psychological well-being, personal well-being. That is, there's a difference in being and well-being. There's a difference in essence and beneficence. Essence is you have life. Somebody says, well, I'm here. How are you doing? Well, I'm here. Okay, that's life. You, you have being. But I'm asking about your well-being, right? Your welfare. Are you really living? Or are you just existing? That's the idea of peace. He says you pray for the peace, for the welfare, the well-being of the city. For in the peace thereof you shall have peace. Tranquility, my beloved, is a blessing unrivaled. True peace. Now, we're not talking about the false peace of the prophets in Jeremiah's day who said, as Jeremiah 8 verse 11 says, peace, peace, when there really is no peace. But we're talking about the true peace, the kind that Jesus Christ can give. John 14, 27, when he says, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. May I say one of the best blessings to have in life is peace. Peace. And I try to pray that on a daily basis. Lord, give us peace. Give me that sense of well-being. Everything's not perfect, but yet I have peace. Isn't that a blessing? What about your community? Pray for the peace of your community. I think we have examples in the New Testament book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul tells Timothy to pray for your leaders, those that are in positions of authority, so that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Do you want to live in the fast lane and be famous and rich and wealthy and be on television and, you know, be written up in the tabloids and have the paparazzi following you taking pictures? Or do you want to just live a simple, quiet, peaceful life? I do. That's what I want. It doesn't matter anymore. I say anymore. Whether people know that I exist. Oh, I had my share of ambition as a young'un. <laughs> yeah, I had my share of ambition. But um, I'll tell you, I've learned that the more visible you are, the more they shoot at you. And I'm glad just to fly below the radar and to watch my kids grow, to laugh at their stories, and to look at these beautiful flowers growing in my yard, and to go outside and to hear the birds, the dove calling its mate, the other birds whistling their tunes. And to see the stars in the sky and the sunshine, I have to tell you, there are few blessings as wonderful as peace. As peace. If you've ever been through a war, a personal war, any of you ever been through a time of trial and difficulty and you came out on the other side and you're kind of shell-shocked, you have PTSD? <laughs> it happens, doesn't it? 
Isn't it wonderful to have some calm, quiet, peaceful days and say, Lord, please, may this continue if it's your will. Peace. And I like that in my community. Don't you pray for the peace? Now, see, being a Christian in Babylon doesn't mean we're disconnected from what's going on around us. We're concerned about it because we know that it affects our peace. So he says, pray for your leaders so that you might lead a quiet and peaceable life. You know, one characteristic of primitive Baptists through the years is they have been people, for the most part, who have been content to serve the Lord sincerely in their country chapels, you know, without trying to be in the forefront of public opinion. They've, they've just been quiet, spiritual, devoted, pious, you know, good-hearted people who believed in paying their debts and getting along with others and treating other people right. They weren't really concerned about being popular, were they? Peace was vitally important to them, and that's one reason that they've survived as long as they have, I believe, from a, just a human perspective. Next, spirituality, verse 7. Notice he says, pray. While you're in Babylon, you're planting gardens, building houses, raising children, but don't forget to pray. Pray. Pray for your city. Be people of prayer. That's being spiritual. My beloved, the most important thing you and I can do living in Babylon is don't lose our connection with God. That was the challenge the children of Israel faced when they were in Babylon. That's one reason Daniel, the three Hebrews, and others redoubled their efforts of dedication to God because they knew that it was so easy being so far away from home, away from the temple, to lose touch with God. And we need the Lord more than we need anything else in our lives. So be people of prayer. Spirituality is vitally important. Keep serving the Lord. Be like Abraham who prayed for Abimelech. We pray for our leaders and read the word. Psalm 119, David says, Oh, how I love thy law. Verse 97, it is my meditation all the day. Thou through thy commandments has made me wiser than mine enemies. I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy testimonies. He said, I have under, more understanding than all my teachers, O Lord, because thy word is my light and my salvation. Yes, my beloved, may we be people of prayer, people of the word, and people who maintain dependence on the Lord. As he goes on to say, pray to God for your community. That is, God can help. We're depending on you, Lord, and we're listening to the word of God, and we're trusting in the promise of God. And I would say number Six is sanity. Here's the sixth word, sanity. And you see that in verse 8. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, let not your prophets and your diviners deceive you. Neither hearken ye to their dreams. For they prophesy falsely in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. That is, be discriminating and discerning in what you believe. Even though it may come from a prophet, a preacher, don't let them deceive you because they don't all have godly motives. And my friends, may I say it's vitally important for each one of us as individuals to exercise discernment of everything we see, hear, and encounter in life. Don't just swallow something because somebody with a nice suit and an articulate command of words can say it with a smile on his or her face. May I say we've got to screen everything we hear through the Word of God. You say, well, this, my doctor said this. Well, okay, I don't want to be disrespectful to anybody, but that doesn't mean that the doctor's infallible. Somebody says, well, our, our president said this. That doesn't mean the president speaks ex cathedra. 
Somebody says, well, the news anchor, I mean, we've been listening, my family's listened to him for years, and this is what he says, and well, my beloved, he may have an ulterior motive in the way that he reports the news, right? There may be a slant, there may be some editorial added into the facts. Used to be the editorial page was separate from, now the editorials seem like they're on the front page of the newspaper, so be discerning. That's not the same as being paranoid. But to be discerning is to be a critical thinker, to prove all things, 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, and then hold fast to that which is good. Finally, certainty. Simplicity, dynasty, liberty, spirituality, tranquility, sanity. Finally, if you're gonna live in Babylon, it's important to make this a priority, certainty. What, what are you sure of? What is your hope for the future? Verses 10 through 13. After 70 years, God says, I will visit you, perform my good word toward you. I'll bring you back to this place, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. What a wonderful promise this is. God's thinking about you even while you're in Babylon. What's he thinking? Not thoughts of evil, but thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end that is a future hope. For he says, In that day you shall call upon me, and I will hearken unto you, and you shall seek me and find me. That is, you will see good days again after these 70 years are over. So while you're in Babylon, keep hoping. Hope to the end, because God is in sovereign control. Would you say what I've described this morning? Home, family, gardens, peace, spirituality, self-sufficiency, and hope. Would you say that's a beautiful life? God is the artist. When God is in control, my beloved, and you and I are following his lead, you can develop a beautiful life even when you're in Babylon, even though Satan is an arsonist burning the world down around you. God, the artist, can bless you to live a beautiful life even in Babylon. When the Lord